HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. Show your support at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. I was in the produce section of Foodtown Williamsburg when I realized how many of my senses are used to pick out fruits and veggies. Since I can't bite into anything to test for quality, how do I figure out what's good enough to bring home? Hear that? It's a ripe watermelon. This one, not so much. This red bell pepper is covered in wrinkles and has a yellow spot. No thank you. (laughs) This pineapple smells like it's ready to be cut into. This mango is too firm. Maybe I'll come back in a few days. Interacting with our food goes far beyond just tasting it. As HRN intern Seth Hartman just showed us, a typical trip to the grocery store can involve smelling and feeling your produce, giving it a tap to see how it sounds, and taking a good look at it before you add it to your shopping cart. This week, our stories hone in on the four senses that accompany taste. We wax poetic on the importance of feeling your food and wonder whether this has become compromised by the coronavirus. Then we dive nose-deep into the science behind smells and explore the emotional responses triggered by ASMR. Finally, we look at the intersection of food and visual art. So keep your eyes and ears open as we embark on this sensational journey. Meat and three. Meat and three. Meat and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat And three. For our first story, we go to Matan Dubnikov on the importance of touch. Imagine you're in your kitchen, about to bring a delicious recipe to life. You head over to the sink, wash your hands, feel your ingredients to make sure they're still ripe and fresh, and rub them clean under running water. After setting the cutting board down, you brush the edge of the knife with your fingernail, making sure it's just sharp enough to cut through all those meats and veggies. These all have something in common beyond being steps to a scrumptious meal, and that's touch. An incredibly important sense in the kitchen, according to Chef Daniel Patterson. Your sense of touch conveys information that nothing else does about the texture of a piece of meat or a vegetable. Um, It might say something about Uh, the freshness of something, the crispness. And then in terms of things like 
tossing a salad, for example, there's no better tool than your hands. The human hand is essential to Chef Daniel's kitchen philosophy. In 2015, he wrote an article on food and wine all about the power of touch and the need for sensory attention in the kitchen. Today, Chef Daniel is the owner of two Michelin star restaurant, Qua, and a famous name in the San Francisco food scene. So a bread dough is a perfect example of something that you can feel the elasticity, uh, the emulsion of the, the flour and whatever else is in there, kneading the dough, shaping it. Like you just can't do that without your, your, your sense of touch giving you information about when things look right and they feel right. Touching gives us tactile signals that reveal all kinds of qualities about our food, from whether pasta is soft enough to serve to how many seeds are in an eggplant. Chef Daniel breaks down his favorite food to demonstrate just how much we learn about our meals from our hands. I mean, let's stay with tacos. You take the tortilla, you move it with your hand to squeeze the ends together so it forms a U instead of a round. And when you eat it, you get a kind of a compact, smushed together, whatever it's in the middle, plus the sauce, plus the tortilla, simultaneously. He might sound poetic, but Chef Daniel has a point. Touch in the kitchen appeals to our philosophical selves, poking at curiosity and the desire to create dishes that satisfy expectations and appetites. Paying attention comes from an innate curiosity and a desire for something delicious and beautiful. And so your sense of touch fits within that, but it's driven by the basic desire to say to yourself, your family, I want to make something delicious. I want to nurture people. I want to feed them in a way that makes them feel good. When it comes to commercial cooking, however, such poeticism can get problematic. With the turmoil of COVID-19 still looming large over restaurant eating, People fear that someone's hands can compromise both sanitation and the quality of their meal. We're living in a time where everyone's wearing gloves and, and very afraid of, of human interaction with each other, with our food. And unfortunately, that, that just diminishes our ability to get information from the food. No fear, says Chef Daniel, who believes that human nature and the pure necessity of touch and food will keep our hands making and baking way beyond the pandemic. We eat things with our hands. It's common not just to our culture, but all over the world. So it's embedded in our DNA as humans that we're going to touch food. Wash your hands. I mean, that's like a big thing, right? So chefs wash their hands like hundreds of times a day. Actually, I would say... It's safer to constantly wash your hands and put gloves on, and sometimes people get a false sense of of cleanliness, and then they don't change their gloves. So if you're at home, just wash your hands before, after, and there's no danger about it. Next time you're prodding steak to test its juiciness or squeezing together the buns on a burger, just remember that sometimes your best taste buds are the ones with five fingers. And now we'll move from touch to smell. Recently, a very large book titled Nosedive arrived at my door. It's the newest work by Harold McGee, an author known for his writing on the science of cooking. Well, uh, it's a big book because the world is a big place. 
Nosedive is a departure from McGee's other works that focus on flavor. This one is a field guide to the world's smells. You know, we can taste a dozen or so different tastes, but uh, we can smell many, many hundreds or thousands of aromas. So I got really interested in the smells of food in particular, and then noticed that uh, so many of them seem to echo other things in the world. In this book, McGee zooms out and explores what he calls the osmocosm. <laughs> the osmocosm is, is something that I made up uh, because I, I was looking for a word to describe the, the universe of smells. And um, I just love the way it sounds and the way it rolls off the tongue, osmocosm. It's got a nice resonance to it. Smells arrive to our noses via volatile molecules bits of the world around us that are actually become detached from the materials that they're originating from. But where do smells come from? Many of the smells that we uh, encounter in everyday life actually exist out there in the cosmos uh, and were created simply by the behavior of the chemical elements long before there was an Earth. And so understanding that and realizing that when we smell uh, vinegar, for example, uh, in the kitchen, that that's a molecule that pre-existed uh, acetobacteria and wine and cooks and uh, really takes us back to the fundamental nature of the universe that we live in. While this idea might seem a bit abstract, it has some pretty interesting and potentially unnerving real-world applications on the foods we eat. Well, uh, it's absolutely true that the Industrial Revolution and the Scientific Revolution brought us an understanding of our sense of smell and of volatile molecules that allowed us to imitate the smells of uh, natural things. And the food industry has gotten very good at taking particular molecules and adding them to uh, materials that are otherwise flavorless, like starches and fats and things like that, and simply adding a, a dose of molecules so that there's the smell of raspberry, despite the fact that there's never been a molecule of actual raspberry uh, in that particular material. Some call this phenomenon phantom aromas, and it can be used to make us think we taste something when it's actually just a smell. In a 2009 study, French researchers found that when participants ate something treated with a salt-associated aroma, like the smell of a ham, they perceived that the food had more salt in it. I think awareness is the is the most important piece of this. You can you can be aware and critical on the one hand or selective about what it is that you choose to put in your mouth, and on the other hand, uh, marvel at human ingenuity. Thanks to Harold McGee for talking to me about the wild and wonderful osmocosm. His new book, Nosedive, A Field Guide to the World's Smells, is out now. And you can hear more from him this Tuesday, October 20th on Cooking Issues here on HRN. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3 after this break. All of us at HRN have been keeping busy, despite working and recording from home. This fall, we're proud to announce new shows on the network that each bring important 
and enlightening stories to listeners around the world. While the world is in turmoil and the future of our country is uncertain, there are certain constants that help keep us going. For us, food and storytelling are essential. While we can't come together in person, food podcasts from HRN provide a virtual table we can all gather around. Bringing exceptional stories to your ears and keeping you informed on the ever-changing political and environmental issues of our time is integral to our mission. At a time when the world around us is rapidly changing, HRN is committed to being here for our listening community, and we need you to be here for us. Join our table and help ensure the future of food radio by becoming a member of HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to make a contribution. Check out the latest additions to our lineup while you're there. You can see all of our series at heritageradionetwork.org slash new show. Welcome back to Meet and Three. The next sense on deck is sound. The ASMR phenomenon has taken the internet by storm in recent years. But what is it? Why do people find comfort in the sounds of an onion being chopped or a bite into a crispy fried chicken? Armin Spengen explores the world of ASMR in our next story. That was an excerpt from a video by Miniature Cucina, a YouTuber who specializes in recording the sounds of her miniature kitchen set. These hypersensitive recordings of an egg crackling or oil sizzling in a pan are meant to trigger ASMR. That stands for Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. Depending on who you ask, ASMR content is either the most relaxing or the most confounding thing you'll find when going down a YouTube rabbit hole. For some, the sounds produced by ASM artists even elicit a tingling sensation that runs down the spine. To get to the bottom of just what is going on with these tingles, I spoke to Dr. Nitin Ahuja, an assistant professor of clinical medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. The phenomenon picked his interest some years ago when he heard about it through the Boring Conference. This was pitched as a boring thing that people were doing on the internet, but it struck uh, a chord with me. In the beginning, I was mostly interested in thinking about what knobs ASMR was pulling on maybe, or how we could explain it from a psychological or emotional or evolutionary standpoint. Uh, I mostly consider myself a commentator and sort of a, a sideline spectator. While some might find ASMR are boring. For others, these sounds can actually be quite soothing. Anecdotally, people say that ASMR videos help with their anxiety or depression or sleep. And so in general, my sense is that consuming these videos is probably a benign activity. I'm keen to see what happens as a result of this self-mediated therapy, but certainly I wouldn't be in any position to recommend it. To get the perspective of somebody for whom ASMR has been comforting, I spoke to fellow HRN intern Tosh Kimmel. So I read a Vice article about ASMR. I didn't take it very seriously. I thought it was really strange and I was listening to it and I thought this is so weird. But then I got tingles for the first time and then I really liked it. 
Tingles are the climactic sensory response from which ASMR derives its long and complicated name. It's the cornerstone of one's ASMR experience. I think most people describe them as kind of like an orgasm for your brain, um, which is kind of accurate. It just really feels like your brain is tingling and vibrating. It's like a very warm feeling. It's just a very happy feeling. It's super relaxing. Besides this tingly sensation, Tosh finds ASMR helpful for the very reasons Dr. Ahuja mentioned before. I use it to go to sleep because I've been an insomniac for like most of my life and I used to be on sleeping medication like I was prescribed the whole nine. I also have really bad anxiety and it just really calms me and relaxes me to listen to it. My nighttime anxiety is definitely helped by the ASMR and it puts me right to sleep. I've almost trained my brain now to if it comes on I get tired immediately no matter what time of day it is. ASMR is different for everybody. Certain sounds might elicit a response for some but not others. This ultimately comes down to a person's unique triggers. My understanding of triggers is just something that initially gives you those tingles in your brain. That is a trigger. It's something that your brain connects with and it makes you feel good and it gives you that sort of high that ASMR can provide. For some, that trigger is the sound of someone whispering personal affirmations directly into one's ears. For others, it can be the sounds of food being prepared or even eaten. Dr. Ahuja describes a category in which many food ASMR videos can be grouped. It's more, I think, explicitly a presentation of sounds or gestures that are typically repetitive, typically simple, and meant to be enjoyable for the viewer. There are videos that are often tagged as quote-unquote oddly satisfying that replicates to some extent what's being presented in the videos tagged for ASMR sensation specifically that rely on repetitive sensory experiences like chewing or tapping on plastic. Tosh has some interesting speculation of her own as to why the sounds of a kitchen and of eating could be someone's personal ASMR trigger. A lot of people talk about how they had their first triggers in middle school when they were a kid. Maybe, you know, you would listen to your mom cook and it would like give you tingles as a child. And so you would search out those videos specifically because that is your personal trigger that relaxes you or brings you back to a certain calming time in your life. Maybe someone, um, it's calming them for them to think that someone's cooking for them. I think a lot of ASMR is about people doing nice things for you. Maybe what makes you feel good is someone pampering you by cooking for you. Or it can just just be as simple as I really like the sound of someone chopping onions on a cutting board or I really like the sound of wine pouring into a wine glass. One thing Tosh and Dr. Ahuja can certainly agree on, while food ASMR is definitely valid, chewing sounds are not for them. I really don't like the chewing sounds. But you know when someone's talking really close to a mic and you can kind of hear their mouth? I, I don't mind that. That's relaxing. But I hate chewing. I don't like chewing. I'll say, uh, you know, I don't personally enjoy the sound of other people chewing. That's just not my bag. But part of what's fascinating about being an observer of the ASMR community is, is just the diversity of how many triggers exist in the world. It makes me interested, I guess, in the idea of empathizing with people who might take comfort in the idea of watching someone else eat or chew. Certainly, it makes sense intuitively that eating is a wonderful experience. So I'm interested, if not personally invested, in the idea that we could achieve that vicariously. I could speculate that 
that there's something sort of lulling about it. Um, I know with mukbang videos. Videos in which the creator sits in front of the camera and eats an inordinate amount of food. There's been arguments made that it gives you sort of an approximation of eating in company, that there's like a sort of social element to that for viewers who may not be all that social, so it may be filling a gap in their lives. Not everyone is a fan of ASMR, and a lot of people misunderstand it. I would say the biggest misconception about ASMR is that it is a sex thing or that it's sexual in some way. Whenever I tell people that I listen to ASMR, it's always like, oh my God, you're one of those people are like, I think that there's a weird stigma around it. It is sensual in some way because it's the senses. It feels intimate, but it really doesn't have anything to do with sex. To the ASMR haters, Tosh has this to say. Why do you care? Like, if it makes people feel good. In some ways, I get it. It is weird. The internet is weird. But at the same time, I think if people just gave it a fair shot, then they might, like, also find some positive things about it. The internet can be such an awful place, too. It's just, like, one nice thing on the internet. It's like, let us live. ASMR is certainly not a board of psychiatry certified treatment for anxiety. But at the end of the day, some people just find the sound of someone biting down on a crunchy pickle or slurping up a mouthful of noodles to be oddly satisfying. To hear more food ASMR like the excerpts from the story, check out Miniature Cucina on YouTube. Our last story this week is about how we can consume food with just our eyes. Here's Karina Pina Andriatos. What comes to mind when you picture a still life painting? A wooden table set with a basket of colorful fruit, a tall vase, and a white sheet, maybe in the style of a Cezanne? For hundreds of years, Western art emphasized the importance of replication. Could an artist paint an apple with the utmost detail? Was the shading accurate? Was the apple a bright, beautiful red? Back then, food was merely a subject for a painting. Now, from religious metaphors to calls for activism, food has taken a deeper meaning in art. Who better to talk to about this than Yael Raviv? I'm uh, the founder and director of Umami Food and Art Festival and our for-profit arm, which is Umami Projects. I also teach as an adjunct professor at NYU's Nutrition and Food Studies Department. The Umami Food and Art Festival and Umami Projects serve as platforms for Yael to share and cultivate the intersection of food and art with New Yorkers and people across the globe. She understands that the significance of food extends beyond just taste. That's why many modern artists use it in their work. Food carries all these culturally specific meanings, so some artists use it for that. The fact that, you know, when you see an apple, it's not just an apple, right? An apple, uh, when you see an apple, you think the Garden of Eden or w- whatever uh, are, is your frame of reference. Some artists use it because it's accessible. It's accessible and open to uh, uh, groups that typically are uh, do not have a voice in sort of a, the art discourse. So a lot of feminist artists use food because it played this double function, right? They could talk about women's roles in the kitchen uh, through food, but they could also use it to open up the discussion to a wider group of people. 
And then also, of course, uh, when we talk about food, it's not just the food that's on the table or in the kitchen. It's a, an entire food system. So we see artists that are concerned with environmental issues, for example, working with the growing of food or with food waste in different ways and because they have an environmental message that they want to put across. So because food is so connected to so many different things, it's so much part of economics and politics and gender roles and the environment and all these different things, it's easy for artists that want to comment on these things to use it because it carries these meanings already. In her piece for Gastronomica, Food and Art in Times of Crisis, to be published this November, Yael explores these connections by looking at the relatability of sentiments felt during the current pandemic and ones in past published pieces of art. She explores concepts portrayed by artists such as xenophobia, social distancing, and more through the lens of food. One example of recontextualization that Yale talks about in her writing is of Chinese artist Ai Weiwei's Sunflower Seeds. Created in 2010, Weiwei, along with others, hand-painted over 100 million porcelain sunflower seed replicas and placed them in Tate Modern's Turbine Hall. The installation explored what it meant for something to be made in China a common association made with the nation and its industrial production. Ten years later, in the wake of COVID, Yael believes someone looking at sunflower seeds might think about how the pandemic instigated xenophobia and perpetuated a suspicion of anything made in China. It's this idea, you know, when we look at a, a project that uh, has food in its center, so we look at these sunflower seeds and we don't, and you know, when we think of the material they're made of, uh, right, China and what they are, sunflower seeds and all of these things add layers of meaning to it. Uh, and that's true for all these other pieces, right, because food comes with a world of meanings attached to it. The next time you find yourself looking at a piece of artwork featuring food, think about where the food came from, its significance to the artists, to yourself, and the time period you'll find it to be a much tastier experience. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Seth Hartman, Matan Dubnikov, Sydney Sims, Armin Spingen, and Karina Pina-Andriatos. Meet in 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet in 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet in 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or just want to say hello, you can write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out.